Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and prefer not to disclose. Back to the Undressing Underground Podcast. I am your host, Pezzy Parson. And today on the show, we have board game designer, former vending machine worker or collector or whatever, and current PhD candidate, Charlie... Um, Essenberger or Essenberger, Eckenberger. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Boris, get the table. Stop fucking with the mic. Uh, anyway. As you may have noticed, I like to experiment with some things on this podcast. And uh, today is no exception. Because today's episode was recorded in a bar. Uh, Charlie and I met up at Savage's Ale House in downtown Muncie because, for whatever reason, neither of our places would work out. And Charlie is there every day anyway or he was before he and everybody else in my master's program abandoned me in this small fucking town in the middle of nowhere but uh yeah so we talk academics board games vending machines etc and throughout it you can sort of hear uh you know like bar music Pretty good bar music, but uh, music nonetheless, and people chattering. I think the Zoom did a pretty good job picking us up, but I've left it in stereo instead of mixing it down the mono like usual to help you hear us. So I will be in your left ear, and Charlie will be in your right ear. And I will be slurring my words and stuttering like a fucking maniac, probably, because even though it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday, we were both fairly drunk. Uh, Stick around to the end for a new edition of Tea Time with T. Volpone, where he will, you know, talk about shit. He tells us about a new website he's got going. And after that, we've got... A little thing, a little short story, I guess, of sorts, or poem. And then another poem that was left to us on our voicemail. So, please, stay and listen. Uh, what would you suggest on tap? I saw some kind of guy who What's uh, I mean, like less obvious? I'll just do. I'll do the thousand, I guess. Yeah. I couldn't really hear her, but. <laughs> yeah, I heard like gumball velvet. <laughs> Champagne velvet. It's a Pilsner gumball head. Oh, fuck. It's gonna be expensive, isn't it? What? It's gonna be expensive, isn't it? No, three bucks. Oh, okay. Yeah, three. Nice. Maybe it's 350 now. It's 3 or 350, but it's not. Either way, I'm used to like 
I still always expect Philly prices. Like, so everything's five or six bucks. Oh yeah, or New York where it's like nine bucks. <laughs> what are you gonna do when you finish? Because like academia oh, doesn't pay. It pays enough. <laughs> to survive. Yeah, it pays enough. See, the reason I wanted to get into teaching is so I could do the things I want to do. Yeah. Like, I was talking to Brookie, we went over to his house the other day, and like, you know, you teach your two classes a week, and you do all your research and you publish papers, you make your $80,000 a year, and then you don't worry about it. Yeah, well, there's ways to get around it. The problem with adjuncting and being an instructor is people who, um, I don't want to say people, just, if you get into adjuncting, as soon as you start adjuncting, you're fucked. Like, that's just where you're stuck. I don't know why, I don't understand the logic, but yeah. if you have adjunct on your resume, you won't get hired as a professor. Huh. I have no idea why. Um, and instructors is apparently a whole different thing, and people choose to be instructors. Yeah. Like guys like Fluke and Swingley and all them, like that's that's just their job. It's something they do on the side. Um, but when you get into full professorship and like you're looking for a specific job that those people are not. Um, you're looking for tenure track jobs, which are completely different than non-tenure track jobs. So wait, how do you get into the tenure track? You just gotta hope you find one at a school, and then you apply to it. So what was uh, Castillo doing before she started here? She was a full professor at, or no, she was an associate professor at Florida State. So is that how you start then? What happens is, once you finish your PhD, uh, you go into ABD, which is all but defending. You've done everything but defend your thesis. Okay. When you are ABD, you start applying to jobs, and you apply to tenure track positions. If you apply to non-tenure track positions, you're going either to instructor or adjunct. Okay. Really fucking confusing and stupid, but yeah. basically you find the ones that are tenure track, and you start as an assistant professor. Um, apparently starting is like 55 or something like that there. But you're an assistant professor for seven years if you get that job. And then within those seven years, you have that's where you earn tenure. So you have seven years to uh, get publications, do service, community service, and school service, and um, your teaching evaluations have to be good. Okay. So you have seven years to build up your resume even more, and then once your seven years is up, you go up for tenure, and that's when you can be promoted to a tenured associate professor. Um, and then, assuming you make tenured associate professor, you have three more years to do all of that again <laughs> to prove that you can be a professor. Oh my god. <laughs> so even after these four years, I have ten more years before I'm making decent money. So you'll be 40 before you're making decent money? Yes. Oh my god. Like, why is that worth it? So I can do other stuff I feel like doing. But could you do that with any other full-time job? That I would like to do? Probably not. I mean, what am I going to do with a communications degree and a digital storytelling degree? That's what I'm trying to find out. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't like doing video production. I don't, okay. you know, I, I'm not into that. I don't, my degree has prepared me for nothing else. <laughs> Even my undergraduate degree was in communication and rhetoric. Yeah, mine was history, so yeah. I relate. <laughs> it, it does nothing. I can go teach high school. Yeah. Like, either way, I'm teaching something. Uh, the money's better in university, and, you know, I can do anything I want. I have tons of free, well, I don't want to say tons, but I have more free time than I would in any other profession. Is the stuff I, I enjoy. Is the idea that you'll become a professor and you'll have graduate assistants to, like, grade papers and stuff, so you're not worrying about that? It see, that depends on where you go. Um, there's, I mean, 
I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, universities break down into three different sections, R1, R2, and R3. Okay. Research 1, Research 2, Research 3. It's basically, where's the priority? Is that a research or teaching? If you're in R1 school, um, Duke, uh, you know, Penn State, they're yeah. all R1 schools, right? They, uh, they focus on research. So they have all the GAs they teach, but all the GAs do the grading and stuff like that. Okay. You come to a place like Ball State, which is R2, it's kind of in between. Uh, they're interested in teaching and they're interested in research. Not as many TAs, not as many of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so you'll get more professors actually grading papers or whatnot. Um, R3 is more of the uh, liberal arts college. Where it's just a teacher teaching, you know, uh, research isn't important. Well, what's an example of an R three cost? Like I went to Temple University, and there were grad A Temple was R one. Okay, because there are there were like GAs grading all my papers and stuff. Yeah, it's it, Temple was R one. Okay. Um, community college is often R three because community professors, community college professors, don't do research. Right. They just teach. Yeah. Um, it's like part time mostly too, right. I guess. Uh, Elizabethtown, that's an R3. It's a small liberal arts school out by Hershey, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's by Hershey, wherever Elizabethtown College is. Uh, that's R3. Um, so they, there's research, if you do it, great, but it doesn't actually matter. So, what are you hoping to be able to do when you're. Once you're teaching or whatever, once you're going for your PhD and everything, I want to spend more time making games. To be honest with you, like board games. <laughs> board, yes. Like why? why though? Like I don't understand. Like what draws you to board games exactly? It's just fun, man. Yeah. Um, when it comes down to it, you know, I like video games just as much as anybody else. Right? Yeah. Like video games, but there's this isolation that happens. I feel like anytime, anytime I'm playing a video game by myself, yeah. it's a very isolating experience. It's just me and the fucking TV. Right. And that's it's just not fun. Even online? Uh, I'm, no, online is different. Okay. I do play games with my brother back home. Uh, I have my friend Matt, whose wedding I went to yesterday, like we play games almost every night. Okay. I feel like that connection is different. I mean, I'm talking about single player games that you're just playing. Yeah. Um, that experience isn't fun to me. It's actually really stressful, and I don't enjoy it. Stressful? Yeah, I don't like single player games. I huh. don't like just sitting there with it. I just don't do it. Not very often anyway. For um, board games, and, you know, analog games, traditional games, whatever you call them, you have to have a group of people around. Yeah. You have to be social. Uh, whether it's with your friends or whoever, you are forced into a situation where you're communicating with people constantly, which is something we don't do anymore. Right. Because right? everybody's fucking tied up on their phones, right? Like, yeah. You come to, you know, look at the fucking bar. There's people just staring at the phones. They're not talking to each other. The bar is a social environment. But it's not, it's not a thing we do anymore. We don't just talk, we just hang out and do things together. The board games are also awesome. So you would be forced to communicate with people, though. Like, you enjoy being forced to? That's a trick question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, it forces you to be, but I choose to go into that situation. Right, because I know, like, you were saying before that you, like, get nervous about... I do. Yeah. I have really weird social anxiety. But if I'm going to, like, a game night in my friends or whatever, I don't really think about it. Because I know we're going to be doing something. I know what the situation is. Um, I'm forced to actually deal with other people. But... Force is probably the wrong word. Yeah, because that's I all I meant, though. Just yeah, it's a excuse. It's a reason. It's a re right to not sit at my computer and do 
that. Yeah. Um, As opposed to like last night, we were just like sitting around right. eating. Which is yeah, but still that's cool too. Yeah. That does, that again, nobody was really just sitting on their phones or bullshitting or whatever. Yeah. People were getting around talking. Um, you know, there's a reason to hang out, and I feel like board games do that too. Especially in a time where we don't do that a whole lot. Um, but I also kind of grew up with it. My family always had game nights. Um, well, I shouldn't say always. It stopped after a while. But um, you actually enjoyed playing with your family when I was littler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah when, I was, when I was a young child, it was fine. But once I grew up and knew better, I, I mean, it, it ended by then. How do you find all these board games you play? The internet. I mean, once you're, it's like anything else. Once you're a part of a community, you just kind of know. So there is like an internet community of board games. It's huge. It's giant. Really. Twitter. It's mostly on Twitter. Really? Mm-hmm. And uh, do they all make their own games? Not all. A good majority. I mean, the part... It's me Me and my buddy Matt uh, are the guys who kind of... We're in a designer community. So we mostly know other designers. But you got things like Gen Con and Origins. Um, what are these? Are these like oh, they're, Yeah, they're gaming conventions. Okay. Gen Con is the biggest convention in in, in Indiana every year. Oh right, the one that like um, that is threatening to leave because of uh, Mayor Pen- or Governor Pence. Have they decided yet? They haven't. Okay. I know Charlotte is actually uh, courting them, really? like, trying to pull them away. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, right. It's perfect. <laughs> but I mean, that brings in almost a million people just for a four-day event. Yeah. So this is like a big thing. It exists. I mean, comparatively. It's still a smaller community. You know, a board game does well if it sells a thousand copies. So does anybody make money off of it? No. Nobody? Nobody makes money. I mean, there are very few people. Well, yeah, like Cards Against Humanity, I imagine. Those guys make money. Those guys are also giant scumbags. So, <laughs> so how... I hate that game. Really? I do. I think it does really shitty things for the board game community because that's the game everybody knows and everybody mentions. Yeah. But it's really about making these really racist and discriminatory jokes. I, yeah, I played it once and I noticed that. It's it's all about make and it's not even good jokes. It's just putting things together. And it's really it's barely a game, first of all. And it's just not I mean I don't want to say it's not funny because that's subjective, right? Yeah. I mean I, mean, I found some of it funny, but yeah, I didn't some know it was of it funny. but it's it's just awful, derogatory yeah. and discriminatory stuff. I don't want people who don't know about board gaming to see cards against humanity. They're like, well this is what these guys do. Well do you think that happens like before you I didn't know there was a board game community. <laughs> if all you knew was Cards Against Humanity though that's what you would think board games are or would you or I guess uh, let me rephrase okay. I wouldn't want you to be introduced to board gaming through Cards Against Humanity well I mean honestly I think because it's not representative of what games do I think most people are introduced to uh, board game community I don't think the idea of it through if they like I mean, this could be just me, but I imagine a lot of people that aren't into comic books wander into comic book stores sometimes, and they just see, like, those cliches, like, sure. those people just sitting around playing right. whatever game. Or else there's, like, Wizard, too. I would think that Wizard, while not played as much as Cards Against Humanity, is more recognizable yeah. at least. I mean, Wizard. Like, uh, Wizard the Wizard Car- the Coast? Whatever the card game is with the, the monster things, like the HP Lovecraft type creatures. It's like Pokemon. Cthulhu? I don't know. <laughs> Magic the Gathering? Yes! Okay, yes. that's by Wizard of the Coast. Okay. It's called. <laughs> I don't know anything, like, obviously. <laughs> I mean, that's. See, 
Magic the Gathering kind of exists on its own. Really? It's different. Um, only because it's so big when so many different people play it. It's kind of like its own community. Those people are not a part of the board game community. Is there an overlap though? There's, yes, there's people who play board games that play Magic, but the culture and the way they socialize and what they do is completely different. The way they so- what do you mean by the way they socialize? Um, magic is very competitive, okay. and when they go to play Magic, it's in a competitive environment, right? Huh. They're going to tournaments, they're going to... I mean, there's not, I mean, they're conventions in a way, but they're still just... They're tournaments. They're going there to play competitively. They don't just play for fun. So there's no board game tournaments then? Uh, there's very few. Uh, you go to something like Gen Con. Yeah. They have a Carcassonne tournament. A what game? Carcassonne. I don't know what that is. It, it's a board game. Okay. <laughs> it's but. about, you know, building land and building cities. So it's kind of like... Is that like... Um, what's that game everybody plays? Catan? No, the, the blocks... I'm really bad at it. No, it's fine. Okay, so, um, <laughs> it's that video game that, like, like my little... Oh, Minecraft. Yes. Yeah, no. Um, is it, like, Risk or something? It's, no, it's not even close. It's, I'm trying to figure out how you'd explain Carcassonne really quickly. Basically, there's tiles, yeah. and on each tile has a plot of land. On that plot of land, you can do certain things, okay? You can build a road, you can build a city, and you are scored by what you're building. So it's not like StarCraft even? No. Okay. Completely different. Uh, There's no... Something like StarCraft is, again, board games are competitive. It's head-to-head, right? Yeah. StarCraft, you're actively trying to demolish somebody else's base. Okay. In Carcassonne, you're just trying to build a better base than than your opponent. So you're not... You're not interacting with your opponent at all? Only by what they're doing on the board. They could stop you from doing something on the board that you chose to do. Because they take over that land? Yes. That's the only interaction you have? Basically. I mean, there's some trading rules or whatnot that I'm not too familiar with. I haven't played the game in a while. Other than that, it's mostly just build your castle and build your roads and get points at the end. So what kind of games do you like? Um, I play everything, you know, as somebody who tries making games, you have to. Yeah. Like, you have to know what's out there, and you have to know what what's already been done, Right. So you like can make that mo- thing differently. Like me with movies, like, I watch everything Every I can, yeah. Right, exactly, same exact just, thing. Yeah, because, like, whether it's, like, conscious or not, you get that input there. Yeah, you have to, and even there's inspiration from some of it, right? Because yeah, even, even if it's not conscious, like, it's shit. Yeah, you just have to keep inputting and right. see what catches. Right, and the more you play... Or in that case, the more you watch, right? You're gonna yeah. figure something out. Yeah. And it's either gonna fix what they fucked up, yeah. or it's gonna be hopefully original in some sort of way. Or even if it's just the same, like it's just at least something. You think it's just something familiar. It's something for somebody else to latch on to. Right. right. Um, so, is there like a specific game you like most then, or a type of game? See, that changes all the time, right? Yeah. It depends on you know what I'm doing. Um, right now. A lot of the games I'm playing are. I can't answer that question because I haven't played anything in a long time. Really? Um, I just there's nobody. The games I'm playing right now are ones that are small, quick, and fast because I play in environments like this. I'm at Savages and my friend show up. We'll play a quick game. Uh, they're called micro games. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's, they, they play in under 10 minutes. Huh. Like, 
Like yeah, one, they were playing one earlier. Oh, they were? Yeah, they were playing Wild which is a really great game. Well, what, what do you do in that? Like, how does uh, a micro game work exactly? Love Letter is a really great example of it. Um, every card, basically there's 15 cards in a deck. Yeah. Every It plays up to four people. Um, and every player is dealt two cards. Yeah. Um, those cards have instructions on them. Every player picks a card, they play that card, do what it says. Whatever it says, and you just keep going around the table until somebody wins. Okay. I mean, that's the really basic and broad overview, <laughs> obviously. Fine. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's quick, it's fast, people get eliminated, and they're done. But it only lasts 10 minutes, so the people that were eliminated aren't waiting a long time to play again. So it's... I was gonna say like pool, but I guess pool takes forever. Yeah, pool takes way longer. <laughs> Do you like other games like that? Like table hockey or pool or foosball? I play pool. Yeah? I mean, I grew up in the vending business, right? So, no way. What was the deal with that? Like, how did your my, parents did it? Yeah. Uh, my great grandpa, actually. Holy shit. Yeah, it's been in our family for almost 70 years. And what do you guys do? Um, it started with pinball machines and uh, like small games of chance, like on the Jersey Shore. What does that mean? Um, like rip off lottery tickets. And oh, like that. okay. Yeah. And then, you know, as technology came about, yeah, we like started doing. Games yeah, right. We did arcade games, we did uh, cigarette machines, uh, really? soda machines, yeah. um, billiards, obviously, darts. Anything you would find in a bar, we pretty much supplied. Wait, how do you get money off darts? Uh, not like a dart board, like the giant dart machines. If you ever saw them, you had to pay yeah. like, yeah. I mean, they basically you pay 50 cents and you, it scores for you, it does all that shit for you. Um, it's not like a regular dart board. That's interesting. It's just an electronic dart board basically that you pay for. So, what do you guys do? Do you guys like buy the machines and then you just collect the money? Mm -hmm. yeah, like, we you... go out, there's a. In Hoboken, New Jersey, is a big distributor of um, vending machines. And we, when I worked there, anyway, I spent eight years working there. Yeah. Um, you know, you go out there and you buy the machines, bring them back, and put them out wherever whoever's going to lease them from you. Essentially, um, usually it's split half and half. Whatever you pull out the machines, you get half and get the other half. But they actually pay you the half machines as well? It depends. It's really situational. Yeah. Like, uh, some of the bigger clients we would take, in, uh, like, a down payment from. Yeah. Um, just because it's more risky to put... Oh, say so it's like, a truck stop, right? It's and like, they a, need, like a deposit then, like, right. in case anything happens, security deposit. Yes, basically. Okay. Like, a truck stops, for example. Say, yeah. like, a truck stop wants 15 of our games yeah. and a cigarette machine. Well... That's a lot of that's a lot of our stuff in in this kind of skeevy place. <laughs> we need this money to say that if it happens to it, we can replace it or fix it. Do you guys like tell them straight up like you guys are skeevy? We need this. It's, we're nicer about it, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's like it's kind of one of those un, unsaid things of business, right? Like they understand yeah. why we're doing it. Um, it's never been a problem, huh? But yeah, it's just kind of went from there. There's mostly. Cigarettes were a big thing until they got banned on the Northeast. And the cigarette machines you can't even own anymore. Really? So we just, yeah. Well, you can own them, right? You just can't put them in your bar and you can't put cigarettes in them. Wait, what? <laughs> you can have a cigarette machine, 
Yeah. But you can't have cigarettes in it. So this is like the law surrounding like abortion you can't clinics. Sell them in bar- right. Yeah. You can't sell them in bars anymore. In New Jersey. In Pennsylvania, I still think you can. I, never, I haven't seen one in years, though, now well, that I think about because it. Because nobody has them anymore, right? Because they're selling behind the bar. You can go down to the corner store. Do you guys do jukeboxes too? It's like yep. a whole... Okay. Did the whole thing. Electronic ones. We have whole room filled with fucking 42s and vinyls and stuff from back when digital jukeboxes weren't a thing. Right? Yeah. And then they became a thing and we had to switch everything over. So Wait, so you guys keep all these things in a warehouse somewhere? We did. Okay. Uh, slowly selling off all the old stuff to collectors and whatnot. But collectors? Like That's people cool. come to us and they ask like... Um, like musicians yeah. and stuff. Like yeah, mostly people like, who want this kind of stuff. Right. We can't use it because it's business. Right? People with money usually, though. Like they're really not. They don't go for it because there's so many out there from the years and years that um, these were a thing. Yeah. Because um, you know, forty twos, I think started like maybe in the mid sixties. So you have almost as far as far as jukeboxes go that's that's me guessing it, maybe it's even earlier I mean they're featured in Happy Days I think and Happy Days okay. was supposed to take place during the 50s okay, so I'm assuming they go like right. a bit earlier probably, yeah. that was me guessing so yeah that's no, probably right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it's like one of those things so we have three storage facilities just filled with them just filled so people you know we can't do it we can't sell them yeah because there's so many out there you go on eBay and get them 500 bucks I so mean, they're not expensive. So if I came to you and just said like I want a forty-two jukebox, yep. how much would it be then? I, I mean, when I was still working there, like I said, five hundred bucks. That's it, just, just flat. Here's a jukebox. Really? No, no discs, no no forty-twos or anything in it. But okay. Yeah, and then you go to the fucking thrift store again for twenty-five cents. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we. Were, I think they were selling. I, didn't, I was a road manager, so I didn't deal with any of that stuff. I was always on the road collecting money and dealing with clients. How far did you go? Was it like only the Northeast? Uh, it was Pennsylvania, Northeast Pennsylvania. As far south as we went was Lansdale. That's it? Uh, New Jersey, we had all everything from Trenton and North. And part um, yeah. of Manhattan. So there's a lot of these. Oh, well, man, I guess Manhattan doesn't a lot of money, probably. I never. I was. I was a road manager of Northeast New Jersey, so okay. I. I mean, it did fine. Yeah, but so there's a lot of companies probably that are doing this. There's then. four. In the Northeast. Oh, in the Northeast. I was gonna say, yeah. Yeah, in in our region, there was my parents' company and three others. Okay. Well, it was my dad's company and my others. But this is not including like all of New England, though. No. Okay. No, in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, there's four. That's interesting. I didn't know there were so many. I didn't. I had no idea how this worked before. Like it's it's weird. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's more in New York because we only had a small portion of New York that we went into. So I should. It's Manhattan, though. So I should really say in New York and New Jersey, there's four. I'm sure there's more in like Brooklyn and Queens. Yeah, and yeah. I'm positive there's more because we never went that far. It's yeah. Just small parts of Manhattan and like Hoboken and Bayonne and whatnot, which is I guess New Jersey still, but we consider that part of the New York market. So, back on board games, how many board games have you designed? Uh, that are done? I guess, I don't know. I have, I should say we, because it's me and one other guy, right? Oh, really? Yeah, it's me and my buddy Matt, who I've known for 
12 years. Is he the one you make comics with, too? Uh, we do pretty much everything created together. Really? Yeah. Uh, I actually met him online playing Counter-Strike. <laughs> like on the Xbox or PS2 or whatever? PC. PC, okay. It was a PC game. Uh, so we met about 12 years ago. We were on a competitive Counter-Strike team. Um, Counter-Strike had a bunch of leagues, like competitive leagues that you play in, and we played in Cal together for six seasons. Yeah, six seasons. So for the first half of our relationship, I never met him. Yeah. And then once we stopped playing Counter-Strike, we kind of lost contact for a little while because we didn't have that commonality between us. Right. And then um, there was a video game tournament in Columbus, Ohio, which is where he lives. And I was like, well, I'm going to come out and watch this video game tournament because why not? And you live there. He's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so we hadn't talked for like six or seven months and then decided to do this. And then I uh, went out to Ohio and met him. And then went to MLG, Major League Gaming, and uh, started hanging out. And from there, there's been no more gaps in our relationship. Yeah. And then uh, we both expressed interest in doing creative things. And uh, board gaming was something we were both interested in. So we started making those games. Um, when, did, when did this start exactly? I met him 11 years ago, so 2003 or 4, I guess. What do you mean, the board game? Oh, board, about five years ago. Five years ago? Yeah, okay. So 2009-ish. Is that when you decided to start going for your master's and PhD? I was still... I was in... No. Actually. I was still in community college at the time is when I started creating games. The first okay. game I actually ever created was with my buddy Pete. Completely random, and nothing ever came of it. This was years and years ago. I, didn't, I, I may not have even known Matt. Or maybe I did just, like, we weren't even talking about this kind of stuff. Yeah. We were playing poker uh, at my parents' house. It was like six or seven of us. And me and my buddy Pete, um, we, we, got, we, we were out. We were playing tournament-style poker. Okay. We just got knocked out. <laughs> and uh, we started playing War with a deck of cards. Yeah, just card to game. kill time. Right. <laughs> and we decided that it was really boring and War sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we changed the rules of war to make this new game called War Zords. <laughs> fucking lame, right? But, <laughs> but what was the what was the rules there? It, it was the same rules as war, but every card had a special ability. So you'd randomly draw a card, and whoever's ability was better. Um, There's a whole bunch of different types of things that would happen, but. Yeah, I think I'm gonna understand this in like a few minutes. Yeah, yeah there's no way. <laughs> yeah. There's no way. Because I mean, there's 52 guards in the deck, right? And yeah. everyone had its own special ability. Huh. It, it was it was awful. Nobody will ever play this game because it was garbage. <laughs> but that was really the first time I ever designed something. And it like just like clicked though when you were playing, when you were doing it. It did. I mean, it worked. We were kind of just bullshitting around, and then actually when I moved to Syracuse, um, he ended up being my roommate because he moved back from Boston. And he needed a place to live because living in northeast Pennsylvania sucked. Yeah. So it was like, well, I'll come to Syracuse with you. It's fine. <laughs> so we did. Um, we actually refined Warzors, and it's done now. It's an actual game. So I guess Pete was Wait, the Wait, can I, like, buy it somewhere? Or? Uh, you can't buy it. Technically, we could put it up for sale, but we're trying to get somebody to license it and sell it for us. Still? Um, he's working on it more than I am. Okay. I've kind of moved on from that. that right. Because I'm working with Matt more now. Yeah. Um, no bad blood or anything like that. It's just me and Matt work better together. Yeah. I guess. Um, but yeah, Warzer's done. Like we have printable copies that you can get for free on the internet. Really? Where? Where at on the internet? 
I'd have to get back to you. That's fine. Because I don't even know where they're at. That's, like, that's, they're on a Google Drive where the link is accessible to anybody. So cool. Actually, no. Pvelucci.com. V-E-L-L-U-C-C-I. Uh, he has it up on his personal website because he's also an author. Self-published. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, on Amazon, like Kindle yeah, stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah, self-published author. But yeah, after that, after we finished Warzors is when I started talking to Matt about that stuff. And then Matt copy-edited the rules of Warzors. And that's when he was like, man, let's make a game. <laughs> and then we've been making games for the past, you know, four or five years. Okay. So, completed games, I have four. Yeah, Warzors, Double Up, Luck of the Draw. So three. There's are, three completed games. Are these all card games? Uh, yes. Okay. We have board games are games with an actual board are way harder to produce. Yeah. Um, there's just more money involved. But what was the deal with the game you were producing for the museum last year? That was a video game. Oh, it was? Yeah. It was. A, it's an app. Yeah. So how did that work? Like, what was the deal with that? Man, that game's garbage. Really? It sucks. It sounded really cool. Like the kids like go to that museum <laughs> right, and they right. interact with surroundings. And it was an internet. It was an alternate reality game. Where what, what, I, was it, what does that mean? Is that, is that a term? Ultimate reality? Yeah. <laughs> so it presents, when you go to the museum, right? It's yeah. called Secret Schematics. Um, when you go to the museum, it presents, they have a uh, QR code that you can scan on your phone. Yeah. You scan it and you're presented with a fictional narrative. Yeah. The narrative was that the museum recently came into, uh, they recently acquired a flash drive that was locked with an encryption code but they kind of deciphered enough to figure out that the kids at the museum could help them decipher this code. That's cool. Eh, it, it was, in theory it's great. Yeah. In theory it's great. Um, so they, the kids would walk around the museum with these clues um, from this mastermind thief, or, or no, he wasn't a thief. He was uh, a guy who created the best model plane because it was an air, uh, a model plane museum. Okay, and he I created that. yeah, it was a model <laughs> plane museum. And this guy created like an amazing model plane, and um, the schematics were locked. So the kids would walk around the museum and unlock them, unlock the code by looking at the different uh, exhibits. Yeah, because uh, there'd be like a hint, like you know, find this thing in the exhibit. So it would force the kids to look at the exhibit and learn um, and they would get they would pick out uh, a random keyword from each exhibit that they went to um, but the problem is it's an, it's an app that only I was working on yeah and they changed the layout of the museum all the time and part of the hints were pictures here's pictures of the place you need to find and here's the hint yeah. and it was usually presented in a riddle form but it didn't work because the riddle was contingent on what was around it too because I would kind of like kind of drive the kids to a certain point of the exhibit yeah so for instance the one exhibit that keeps fucking moving is this thing with Snoopy yeah and at one point Snoopy was above a bell so the riddle I wrote had to do with a bell and now the bell's not there so it was like good for like a week or something right and you know, once I'm done, you know, I'm still, it's still not done. Yeah. It's still not done. Are you still working on it? Yes and no. I have to go take new pictures. 
which I just haven't done, and I'm leaving it away. <laughs> but the problem is, once the stuff changes again, they can't use it anymore. Why do they keep changing? It's a fucking model airplane museum. I don't, yeah, like, I don't understand how museums work, <laughs> so I, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but that was that was the first video game I ever designed. But and it's and it's barely a video game, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So it's the interesting thing. It's like it's not really because it's it's, it's a website that leads you on a tour of the museum, but it's presented with in a different way to get kids more involved because studies show that kids don't care about museums. Yeah. They're, they're not as engaged. They're not as interested. Yeah. I know. Like when we were when we were probably kids, the Philadelphia Zoo had the right. zoo keys. Right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but like all that did was like unlock more facts yeah, I think did, yeah we unlocked it and then didn't read it right yeah so how do you engage the kids in, in a meaningful way and as somebody I hate calling myself a game designer because it's so pretentious but I mean, you do, do it though right it's a hobby yeah like, but that's still something I, yeah I put podcaster on my fucking LinkedIn <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's fine okay so as somebody who designs games I'm gonna put it that way yeah fine like it's I feel like I'm almost obligated to do things that are meaningful yeah and no, kids should be interested. I get it. It's model airplanes. Who cares, really? I don't understand what a museum for. I guess there's something to it. I mean, there's some cool stuff in there. There is yep. some cool stuff. I mean, but it's not something that most kids would be interested in. They want to look the fucking planes, but they yeah. don't want to understand, like, how they came about, why these planes exist. But as a game designer, we have the ability, game designers have the ability to create these meaningful experiences for kids that can actually teach them something, too. Um, and that's kind of why I wanted to do it. So that was the first time that I tried making something outside of a board game. So my board games aren't. Um, they're just, just fun. I think they're fun things. Um, you don't release any of them? Um, the one game is been purchased, but it's not released yet. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, by a company in Europe called Green... Uh, yeah, what? It's either Green or White Goblin. I can't remember. <laughs> it is one of those things. They, the way board games are purchased by smaller companies is you go to a convention and you bring them your design and you play your you play your game with them. You show them your game. Um, and in this case, we played our game with them and they're like, okay, we like it, we'll buy it. Okay, so they have a con they have their the contracts are just pre-made, right? They fill in the blanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they bought it for 500 bucks. Wow. We, here's I mean, it's game. not a lot. No. But it's like, it's that easy. game took a year to build. I mean, still. That just... was a year of work for 500 hours, which is Yeah, it's still bullshit. Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Like I said earlier, you don't go into it because you want to make money, because you won't. Yeah. You just won't. And we you spent more money on prototypes than we made from that deal. Really? But they took the game. What was more the prototypes like? Uh, to make sure the game was working properly. Uh, so so we, was, we, was there an actual board? Nope. This was all. This was card and dice. Okay, so you had to buy the card and dice though. Yeah. Every time we'd come up with a new iteration of the game, we'd have to reprint the cards. We'd, uh, the dice, you know, dice or dice. Okay, so you just buy like the white, white and black dice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you just have a set of dice, but every time we came up with new cards or new idea, uh, new ideas, we would have to go to the printer and have that printed. Which is like ten bucks every time. Yeah. But when you're doing it almost weekly for a year, I mean, it weekly? I mean, I mean, I'm exaggerating. I mean, that game probably cost estimate, probably about a grand. Really? But you both split the cost. Yeah. Yeah. But even when we split the cost of that five hundred dollars, I mean, we didn't 
mean, it's cool that eventually maybe it'll make it out there because they still haven't released it. <laughs> um, but they own it now, so they don't have to actually tell us anything. Yeah. So, and they're in Belgium, the company that bought it. And you don't get in, like, any res- residuals? Like, there is the residuals. Yeah. There is contracts that do that. The one we signed, we simply sold them design. Because it's a really, it was a micro game, like we were talking about earlier. Okay. So you play it really fast. Uh, there's no residuals. Involved. So you'd just be happy to get it out there. It's just, if it gets out there, great. At this point, this was two and a half years ago. I'm not convinced that it will actually get anywhere. Huh. Which is something that happens. It's like movies, right? They get yeah. options, and then they go nowhere. Um, the same thing happens with board games. People buy them, and then just never release them. It's weird. That's like a whole world I wasn't aware of. Yeah, it exists. It's <laughs> it's actually very similar to the film industry in that way, I guess. <laughs> but like, who? Like you already said, like there's no money in board games. Who makes money? Publishers make money. They do make money. Publishers do, and there's only there's very few. I think there's five. Like, five. Five like, major publishers in the world. Five major publishers in the world, probably. And was the one that bought yours one? No. Okay. It's a small independent so there are thing. Sm- okay. Yeah. There's plenty of small ones, and a lot of people do it from Kickstarter now, too. Yeah, um, I saw, I noticed that. Kickstarter is huge for independent board games. Um, I'm not willing to take the time to go through what it takes to do a successful Kickstarter. Yeah. So I will never do that. So did they make money off the Kickstarter, or did they make it afterward? Very few. Um, they don't make any money at all. They're not... See, this is what people don't tell you about Kickstarter. You're not supposed to make money off it because you're offering everything back to the people back you. You don't. You're not supposed to make like a salary at all. You're supposed. To, when it comes in, okay, I guess this is like the board game community, and this is what they expect. Yeah. In a board game Kickstarter, they want to know where every dollar is going. Nobody but, ever says some of this is going back to me. Really? Everything is expected to be put back into the game and back into, um, like, backer rewards and stuff like that. So they do expect- not supposed to make, they expect you to make no money. Okay, when you make a budget for, like, an album or a movie or whatever, though, you include your salary in there. Like, I'm getting this much for putting this much work into this. They don't do that with Kickstarters? There's very few people that do, and, you know, I'm not going to say anybody by Yeah, no, no, it's fine. And, um... The guys that do, they're, they're very well established and they have a lot of games out there. So it's just like the cards against humanity guys and that's it. <laughs> There's, I mean, fuck them. I don't care about them. I'll yeah. They're so big that they'll never, like, they don't know who I am. So they don't they still have boxes of bullshit. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah they're the worst people in the world. But there's, and they're not even really a part of that community. They're, really? They're kind of above it. Like, people know who they are and they, they show up to these conventions. Did they start in the community? Then? No. They didn't? They, no. How, how did they? Uh, the they, community actually started in Germany. Huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what were your... I guess I'll do the gumball, actually. Thanks. Let's make it drunk for no reason. <laughs> the, uh, Catan... Settlers of Catan was, like, the first... It's, it's considered a designer board game. Artisan board game or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it's from Germany. I think Germany. Somewhere in Europe. Maybe Austria. But, um... That ended up making it over here, but it started over there. But the cards against cards against humanity guys, they're they're not really part of that community. Huh. I mean, they're they're in it, right? So but they're how, not engaged. They're not people that you can just go up and talk to. But I mean, were they ever? They're, I don't know. 
You don't know? Because okay. they just kind of shoot. They, they, they were just kind of there at one point. Like, they just showed up and they had this massive success. That's um, so weird. It's like the 1%, right? They're yeah. the ones that get lucky enough to get that level. That While there's people attainable. like us that have been here for years doing this, yeah. they showed up and did it with this apples to apples ripoff. Because yeah. that's all it is. That yeah, yeah. Be, it's, it's a bullshit game. Do you like apples to apples? No. Okay. I think that's boring too. Because okay. it works off the same thing. It's just less discriminatory. Thank you. Um, but yeah, they're they're not really a part of it. Um, like they don't they show up to the big conventions like Gen Con, Origins, um, like San Diego Comic Con, stuff like that. They'll be there. Yeah. Um, but like the smaller things like the Wizard World shows or things like Pro Spiel, which is a small. It's like a handful of guys. It's like twenty or thirty guys that show up at a hotel for a weekend to design games and get feedback on their games. Uh, they don't do that kind of stuff. But they're also not designing anything else. They have Cards Against Humanity, so they have to come up with really derogatory things to put on cards every so often. Right, just hire company writers. Yeah, yeah, right. It's it's not game design. It is not game design. It's comedy writing. You're absolutely right. And it's not even funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like fucking Andrew Dice Clay comedy yeah, writing. <laughs> basically, yeah. It's, it's the lowest level of comedy writing that it could possibly be. So... Uh, Hmm. There was an original question there that I can't remember where I was going with that. What do you mean? You asked me something about something and I went on a tangent because I hate Clubs Against Humanity. Apples to Apples or the community or where it came from? Or... Yeah, I think you asked where it came from. But Settlers of Catan is where there's kind of like the resurgence, the resurgence of uh, board gaming in, in America. Yeah. <laughs> It was before I started doing this, um, so I, I don't really know when, but uh, Settler Catan is like, it's considered the gateway game that you give everybody to play. Um, to get them into the community? To get them into board game. Really? Because when you think, when you say board game, people think of uh, life. Yeah, or you know, Candyland. Or, or, yeah. Those are, those are looked down upon in the board game community. Those are, um, uh, what the hell do they call them? I don't really deal with it too much, but it's like roll and move. Well, they are roll and move games. That's what the mechanics call. Because you roll a dice and you move your fucking chip, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they they have some like derogatory name that they call those kind of games. <laughs> really? I can't remember what the hell it's called. You can tell me later. <laughs> yeah, if I remember it, I'll tell you. You can edit it into the notes. Or yeah, just the yeah, outro. You know, those aren't actually considered board games. Huh. I mean, they are, but as far as community concerns, they might as well not exist. That's interesting. So even though this is like an underground sort of thing, they sort of consider themselves legitimate opposed to like the mainstream establishments. Right, which is things like Payday, Life, Monopoly, and stuff like that. Like, those are not a part of what we do. Um, I play them and I enjoy them. Yeah. Because I think Monopoly is fun. <laughs> like, I do, and most people don't. Um, but, you know... It's not what I would consider a, a board game um, by the standards that I understand for the community that I'm involved in. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why those standards exist. It's like when I kind of entered it and I started doing this thing, you know, those are the games that everybody shit on. 
Yeah. And now Cards Against Humanity is kind of in that same thing, and I wonder if it's just because they're big. Like, just because they're really popular. Well, that's part of being the underground, right. shitting on the over. <laughs> that's all, like, the new waves are. Like, you look at the new wave, and it's like, fuck all the big... Like, this is great interview with Goddard, where he just talks about, like, how awful, like, Disney and stuff is. And they said, well, if Disney gave you money to make a movie, would you do it? He's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's probably the same thing. Um, as a game, like, forgetting about the community and the social aspect, though, as a game, Things like Monopoly and Payday are very on the surface. Yeah. Because they're family friendly. They're just what they're, they're, they're very yes. easy. They're the establishment, yeah. They're super easy to play. They're not they're not challenging. They don't make you think. Um, I mean, in a way, I mean most people don't even know the actual rules of Monopoly. Um, <laughs> you know, they they're not strategic for the most part. It's just it's roll and move. You yeah. roll dice and move a chip and you do what it tells you to do. Designer board games aren't like that. You, in most cases, I'm not going to say all. In most cases, you actually have to strategize and come up with, you know, a system in which you want to work in to make this work. Um, in games like Monopoly and Candyland and stuff, they don't offer that. Huh. Uh, they're very on the surface, very basic, and uh, just not complicated games. Well, I have to pee, so I guess I'll end this. <laughs> On that cynic note. Cynical. That's the only way it ought to be, so... Alright. That wasn't too bad, now was it? At least after those first five or ten minutes that I could have warned you about, instead of just alienating however many people were actually listening to this. But, uh, I didn't want to re-record the intro. Anyway, next up, we revisit tea for our recurring segment of Tea Time. He's got a new website to tell us about, so here's a tea. So let's see, how long have been recording now? I've been recording for 17 minutes now. <laughs> that ought to be enough. <laughs> yeah, but no, we gotta we got talk about your, uh, your thing, your, your ghostwriter shit. Well, I did. Yeah, I made a new website, and I remembered the name of it this time. Getting, getting my um, promotional skills down. It's called ghostwrittenbooks.com. So I've been. It's not set up yet, but it's getting there. Oh, we only have two books. Um, we have two books at the moment. There's this third one coming out. We should be like a new book a month for a while. Maybe you could bump it up to two. I'm hoping, but it's a lot of writing. So these are your like how-to books. Yeah, they're just going to deal with different occult and spiritual topics. Like, we have one on tarot cards, and there's one on about Wicca. And there's one coming out about herbs and candles. I'm not sure what's after that. We haven't gotten that far yet, but it's going to be like magic, meditation, zen. So, wait, what about herbs and candles? Like, or is it, it like it's cooking all herbs? Kinds of, uh, yeah, well, there's cooking herbs, but you can use them like. I hate to say, like, you can use them magically. <laughs> but that's what it means, basically. Yeah, that's pretty much what you're doing. Like making, um, like, mojo bags. Um, there's a big practice in, like, ho- hoodoo's neat. Because it's, like, all these folk magic practices that are uniquely American. But, and they're not that old. 
modern hoodoo goes like parallels the evolution of blues music too hmm. it's like it's cool stuff to get into like the southern like back in the 30s and 40s like everybody was fucking carrying mojo bags and cat bones in their pocket and stuff down down south it's all leftover customs from the slave days never really went away but the cool part is after world war ii when a lot of the african-american community moved to like chicago for the car jobs yeah they, they took their superstitions and stuff with them but they're like you're in a city now so you couldn't go get like nobody had a garden nobody had all the shit they used to have so <laughs> and like a pharmacy you know like a back then you would go and you'd be like yeah i got the someone's putting the wind like you wouldn't go for like headaches and stuff you go talk to the the doctor about um like your haunted house and he would like write you a prescription for like, <laughs> like rub this on a candle and burn it three nights during the full moon and like but what happened was like so you have this group of people who's who needs to buy things like they're used to buying candles and herbs and you know oils essential oils and stuff they can't get them anymore yeah. and they, they so but in, when they get to Chicago, like they start walking into pharmacies, like wondering where all the where the wizard is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so some like perfume manufacturer figured out that they can pretty much double their product line by marketing perfumes to white people and occult oils and fragrances to um, in African American communities. Mm-hmm. That's how you get stores like Harry's, a cult shop in um, in Philly. Yeah, on South Street. Yeah, it closed now. Thank God, that place is a shithole. But when it opened, it was it was like it was a pharmacy run by a white Jewish guy, and he kept getting all these African American customers asking for like, "Where's your saying? You know, where's your um, high China Conqueror roots? And where's, where's all this stuff?" And he was like, "I don't know what you're talking about." But it happened so much. Like the story is that he just started selling it, and then like it became popular. Hmm. The store lasted almost a hundred years, but it's this whole like small industry that's like it's like Jewish pharmacists taking advantage of <laughs> black superstition. <laughs> like, like it's a thing, man. Like these occult supply shops popped up in cities that had like big influxes of African Americans from the rural South. It became like a kind of cottage industry. There's still some going in New Orleans now, right? But that's I know there's like a lot of man. white people doing it down there yeah. now, though. <laughs> it always has been. Like oh, really? In, in, in the retail angle in the cities. Oh, no, I mean like practicing. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, white people, we're, we're allowed to get into it now. Like, <laughs> we, we weren't for a while. <laughs> well, they're done with it now, so now we pretend that it's real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, um, like in the 60s approved. with the Confucius bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, Confucius. He was a dick, dude. Lousy's way better. <laughs> I forget what the Slate article was about uh, Eastern medicine and Mao. Like, I f- well, Mao Zedong. They said, I hear you, you hear a bunch of stories, but basically, what he did was he forced Chinese doctors to go through Chinese medicine and like, um kind of reorganize it so it, it was more modern and fit in with Western medicine. Yeah. The, the purpose was so that China could be like, look how great we are. We have this Chinese medicine. It's a like national treasure and it's a gift to humanity and all. It didn't really, but they say he didn't believe in it at all. He was just right. into it for propaganda reasons. But then he marketed it to the, to the West, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that was the whole point was to be like, look how much better we are than you, stupid Whitey. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't really buy it, like they say, which is a, it's when people talk about Chinese medicine, they tend to just like like you could talk about Western medicine the same way. You can bring up like um, all the things they got wrong. And just say that that's what it is, you know. <laughs> never like you never hear like Chinese medicine's weird. You're like, oh yeah, they grind up uh, rhino horns and drink them to get boners. Like that's pretty stupid. They also drew the nervous system without ever doing an autopsy on anybody. <laughs> so like, like Western medicine's the same way. They they used to like I don't know lobotomies. Or in 20 years, like, you know, we really shouldn't have passed out SSRIs like they're jelly beans. Yeah, like, maybe there's a better way to do this. Like, if well, you I mean, just already look at there, that. Because there's no, yeah. they don't understand how it works, but the, the chemical imbalance thing isn't real. No, it's not real. It's dietary. Like, that's what they're going to say. They're going right. to say it's gut bacteria and diet in five years. <laughs> that's what they're going to say. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I know my SSRI is helping me, but I know it's like also driven other people insane. Like, yeah. But it's it's but it's not like the it shouldn't be the first thing you try like yeah that was a surprise me like I was waiting like, there, like yeah just well, this is a I was like okay okay here you go it's I mean like, it works so it's whatever I'm on a low dose but yeah it's like what happens if I don't do anything well you might get better or you might go insane what happens if I take the medicine well, you might go insane or you might get better <laughs> like well I already knew the first part was leading toward insane so that's why I started the medicine I was like yeah, all right yeah, I'll sure. try a different consciousness then. <laughs> yeah, let's see what this does. Like, yeah. it's just it's no different than drinking every night. Yeah, well, except that maybe much worse. That's what I mean. I mean, yeah. no, I mean, you're you're doing something every day to purposely change right. how you're thinking. Like, does it really <laughs> matter what it is? Like, if it's a pill that makes you get your shit together, or if it's like a quart of whiskey? Like, does it? Like, it's just which one makes your day better? Yeah. Not. Oh no, I'm. It's like I don't know. I was drunk for a couple of years. <laughs> Like pretty solidly drunk for a couple of years. Yeah, I think it was like right after I was taking bass lessons from you, right? And you like moved into that house after your divorce. Yeah, my um was wasn't quite a divorce. It it wasn't was a, yeah, uh, engagement broke. Batched, yeah, batched engagement <laughs> misfire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just drank man for like three years. That's when all this weird shit started happening too, like voodoo people and everything. But drunkenness provided just enough ability to not to like suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Like it just that worked out for me. If I had taken SSRIs, it would have been a disaster. But yeah, I remember when you found Voodoo. You were I found out about you and Voodoo. <laughs> I was tr I was going to meet somebody, and then like they stopped calling me back. And I was driving. I decided to drive into Media, and you walked past the front of my car. I had no idea you were living in Media, but you walked past the front of my car wearing all white, like white shirt, oh. pants, <laughs> shoes, and white baseball cap. <laughs> <laughs> That's after you get um, in Santeria when you get initiated. Yeah. Like there's three big ceremonies. I just had the first one. I needed like an official weird religion union card. Like, <laughs> just makes your life easier. Like if things yeah. have gone too far, you just need like to join a gang. <laughs> I tried <laughs> like, to do well, that. To. I tried to do that with the church. Not the church. Uh, oh, yeah. The church of the, of the latter day dude. Dudism. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you started Dudism? No, I didn't start it. No, that'd be amazing. Uh, I'd be rolling. Okay. I, I think dude, that guy's probably got some money now. But um, yeah, I paid for like the ten bucks for the card or whatever and the the form to be a reverend in the Church of the Latter Day Dude. 
I was like, yeah, see, right. that counts. Yeah, but it didn't, it didn't do anything for me. I, I still consider from time to time churching the church, join the church of the sub genius, but uh, they're good people, I think. Yeah, they, I, I think the know. flying spaghetti monster is a better option, though. Maybe well, the thing with all those things, though, is that they all feel just like middle-aged white people humor <laughs> like yeah just like middle-aged dads like the weird uncle or something <laughs> the weird uncle religion yeah that's kind of yeah you know as a weird uncle <laughs> yeah yeah totally <laughs> I, i'm sure i'm going to be someday <laughs> yeah yeah it's a good 10 years yeah. you'll, be a good, you'll be a good weird uncle <laughs> thanks <laughs> um, <Hell> yeah. <laughs> but uh um, no, i guess you. <laughs> it's not enough <laughs> yeah Whatever. Come over here, kid. Let me ruin your mind. Yeah. <laughs> Everything your mom told you is a lie. Yeah. Everybody, everybody <laughs> told you. Everything. She's but, incapable of love. <laughs> Trust me, I grew up with her. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so wait, the book about herbs and the candles and all that shit, is that what yeah, this is so going to be about? Well, see, and here's another interesting thing. Like, so you have, like, these magical folklore practices that are mostly like african-american from the slaves and like in the 70s when white people started getting into like when witchcraft come, started coming back and eastern yeah. philosophy got popular like 60s and the 70s they just kind of glomped on it all like they just kind of like took it like yeah what they did. Kind of it i mean that was a time when they when white people else. took rock and roll too like really yeah, took yeah. it yeah yeah, yeah. so like that's what i'm saying there it's interesting like musically like it's a neat thing to see how like the same thing just happened like almost parallel yeah. to the culture i don't think it's but a coincidence <laughs> no no it's just it's marketing there is no coincidence yeah things marketing like if you i don't know if you're looking for money you get a green candle and you rub some money oil on it and you sprinkle some herbs like cinnamon allspice they're associated with attracting wealth so you would set that out somewhere and light it and then or they use them in mojo bags, which are supposed to ward off or pull in certain influences. Like you might make one again for money or to find someone to sleep with or to get a job or something. And it's just, and then you put all these things in there that are like, you just want to make a note, you know, you want to make a vibration in your pocket that just says like money. And then that's how the idea works behind it. Like speaking out loud about it, Makes it sound kind of silly. <laughs> but reading about it, like, you know, when you're alone and you, know, you don't have to worry about your opinions or, you know, you can think about weird things, it's not so bad. But yeah, yeah when asked to explain it, it's a little on the ridiculous side. But there's people out there who take it seriously. That's kind of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's good. I'll uh, I'll turn all this shit off then. Hey, look, it's Boris on my lap again. Nice. Yeah, I like that cat. Yeah, everybody does. Everybody's he's a good good. cat. Yeah, Boris. Is cat. he? He's popular. Yeah, of course. Nice. Paul Lugosi's not the popular one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course not. <laughs> in the corner shooting up. Yeah, <laughs> she's the one that's in my Facebook, sitting in that box like a like she's drunk, just under arm over the side. Like, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> That's a great cat picture. I know. <laughs> anyway. Thank um, God for him. Yeah. All right. I'm going to turn all this shit off. We've been talking for half an hour. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. But I mean, it's like 10 minutes of the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Yeah, it's always, I, like, I like to see how you whittle it down. You always make it like into... It's, like, <laughs> it's, 
It's like some Homer Simpson shit. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but that's good. <laughs> he did explain what uh, the Homer Simpson shit comment meant, but uh, I cut it out, and I'm not going to tell you what he meant. Next up is a Gawker comment by Kenji user Bitch Pudding. The, I got Bitch Pudding's permission to use this comment. They didn't want to read it, so it's just another synthetic voice. The comment was in reply to an article about that Barclays employee who sent out that mass email to all the interns telling them all this shit like how they're gonna have to buy lunch for their superiors and sleep under their desks and work 60 hour weeks for no money or whatever. I forget what it's about. I just know the guy was a dick and I thought bitch pudding perfectly summed that up. So first we have Bitch Pudding with that, and then we have a brief poem left in our voicemail by Daniel James Hugh Bernie. His favorite movie is The Wolf of Wall Street. His Facebook background wallpaper is an urban cityscape. His Facebook profile picture oscillates from him with his arms around his bros or him holding a baby relative for tender purposes. He sucks in his guts and flexes in front of the gym mirror every morning. He gives black guys fist bumps. He has no problems with gay people. He just doesn't like to see that shit. All women his age are filed under one of two categories. Potential wife or DTF. He considers the social network to end on an uplifting note. He considers his madman avatar Don Draper. It's unquestionably Pete Campbell. He shares his Uber rides on social media with something like hashtag life of a banker. We each probably list roughly 17 of him among our Facebook friends. Hi, my name is Dan Bernie. I am submitting a poem. This poem is called Horse Shirt. Horse shirt. Enthralling equestrian enthusiasm evokes elaborate elation. Entered entirely equating, earmarked evangelically entitled entropy. Horse shirt. That was Daniel Burney with Horse Shirt and Bitch Pudding with their comment on that Gawker article that I will link to in the blog post 
for today's episode. Thank you for joining us, me, whatever. Come back next week for a special little interview with podcaster and I think writer, but probably primarily Twitter er er. I'll tell you about his podcast next week, so you'll spend more time re-listening to mine before then. No need to promote unnecessarily. Uh, In the meantime, if you have your own short story, poem, or what have you that you'd like to be featured in the podcast, feel free to call us at 260- Punk Pod or 260-786-5763 or you can email us at undressingunderground at gmail.com Oh no, here comes Boris to fuck up everything. Good. Nope, Boris. Stop it. Good, Boris. Alright. You can also hit me up on Twitter or OKCupid at FalconVane. Falcon like the bird. Vane like that shit that sticks out of your arm and you put spikes into. Uh, You can also post whatever thing you have to say in the comment section. I will get back to you on there as well. Stop it, Boris. You're supposed to be the good one. No, never good around me. Oh, God, Boris, you ruined my train of thought. What else am I supposed to tell these people? I guess otherwise, don't forget to submit your own guest suggestions or your own interviews. And if you have anything good, we'll, uh, we'll stick it in there. That's dangerously close to... Fucker right in the pussy. No, it's not. Also, if you draw, uh, reach out to me. Or you do any kind of visual art that is made up and not photographs or video. Because, uh, I shot this short film and some of the footage got fucked up. Boris! God damn it. And, uh, shit, ring out time. Some of the footage got fucked up. I have the audio, but I have no more of the image. So I just need people that draw to do various stills of this one scene for me so I can edit them all together to make up for the scene. God damn it. Fucking over. Boris, stop it. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or whatever you use or subscribe to the newsletter or just reach out to me and I'll tell you when it's a new one. Why now, Boris? You couldn't have, like, waited two minutes?